Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Skyping's Avenue. Okay, welcome to another edition of Small Doses. Today, y'all. Okay, so let me just explain how we how we got here. Cause I know my listeners are gonna be like, how 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 did this all come together? Okay, so all of us have gone down an Instagram wormhole or two or three or four. For me, I was on attorney Ben Crump's page and he had posted a video of this white dude speaking very earnestly, but it was on mute. So I was like, oh, here we go. This fucking racist bullshit. And then I, <laughs> as, as a masochist, I unmuted it to hear. And instead of racist bullshit, it was actually quite the opposite. And it was our guest, Daniel Collins, um, speaking about the gross injustice of the way in which the prison and the justice system has treated him versus someone who became his friend while in prison, Rashawn Clark. And I started to look at your videos and I just started looking further and I saw Rashawn speaking. And I want this podcast, like this podcast has kind of morphed over the years from like just a self-help podcast of me just speaking my mind about like what we can do for self-care, et cetera, to a place where I feel like I can use this platform of dope listeners who are action oriented and who are really like intellectual thinkers to expose people's stories that are really about creating more change and, you know, creating equality and really earnestly fighting against the discrimination and oppression that continues to be pervasive in this country. And so I saw your story and I was like, I would love to give space for you to talk about not only your experience, but also to tell Rashawn's story, because that's really what brought me to you was their earnestness that you had in being an advocate for his release. Absolutely. And I appreciate you having me here. No doubt. Now, Daniel said he's nervous. So we're going to just give Daniel all the energy, all the good energy <laughs> and vibes. You know, you just got a deep breath and all of that. And then, you know, let me tell you something. When you take up these mantles, it comes from a good place in your heart. But then there's like all this other shit that comes along with it. Absolutely. There's a <laughs> lot of scrutiny that comes with it. And I've lost uh, a lot of friends and family along the way. I can imagine. Yeah. So let's start with you. Tell me about how we got here. Because I told y'all about how I got to you. So tell me about how you got to a position where you would get to me. Okay. So a little bit about my background is once upon a time, I had aspirations of being a professional baseball player. That was my childhood dream. Ultimately, I ended up becoming one. And so I got drafted by the Atlanta Braves. I played in their farm system for a few years before I was taken out by drug addiction. And with drug addiction came prison. So I was sentenced to 10 years in prison on two different dates. So the first time I was sentenced to five years, I did four years on the five. The second time I did seven years, I did six years on the seven. So in that experience, I went from somebody who was far right-wing conservative, Trumplican, to somebody that befriended Rashawn. Wait, did you just say Trumplican? Yeah, so that's actually how Rashawn and I met. 
I was all about the capitalist system. I was all about conservative values. It was the way that I was brought up. It was the way that I was taught. So my friendship started with Deshaun was I was introducing him to the stock market in prison. So I was studying a lot of books. I was reading a lot of books on the stock market. Okay, I'm going to stop you. Okay. I'm going to stop you because you've told this story so many times that you skip over big chunks. Okay. <laughs> big chunks. Because I know at least 50, 11 people listening to this podcast just went, wait, what? He was in prison teaching Rashad about how, why would that even? So one, I want to know first, if you don't mind sharing, what were the two bids for? Because I'm, to my knowledge, Rashad's indictment is different. Yeah. So the first time I went to prison, I had two burglary of occupied dwellings, a burglary of conveyance, possession of cocaine, aggravated fleeing and looting, aggravated assault on the officer, and three grand thefts. Yeah, like that's a lot. Nine charges. Yes. And that wow. was in 2009. That's the same year that Rashad got sentenced for his one crime in which he was the least culpable, but received the most amount of time. And we're from the same judicial circuit, too. So that okay. was the other thing that brought us together. We're both from the same area. We got sentenced under the same judges and same judicial circuit. And that's how I was introduced to the disparities in the system. And the so second the second time, time I went to prison, I was charged with a burglary. This time was at my parents' house. My dad said I could be there. My stepmom said I couldn't. Ultimately, they tried to drop the charges. The state picked them up and said, you're no longer a victim. You are now our star witness. And they tried to subpoena them to testify against me. But ultimately, I was wrong. Were you actually robbing them or were you living there and then it just was a misunderstanding? I was staying there because my dad was allowing me to at the time because he knew that me in active addiction was capable of doing anything. So he was trying to protect me. But the rule was that I had to be out of there before my mom came home. So ultimately, one day I was leaving and my mom was coming home. She saw me and she called the cops. So your mom or your stepmom? Well, stepmom. I've always known her as my mom. So my biological mother left when I was one. So I never met her. She actually passed away when I was in prison. So um, which is a whole other story in itself. But that's how I got to prison. I had a total of 13 felonies in the two sentences. And Rashawn's one. And that's what really opened up my eyes to how our system, because I was always the guy that thought that I was a victim of the system, you know? And Mm -hmm. although I don't believe the system was fair to me, once I started to learn the disparities and how much it disproportionately impacts people of color, people like Rashawn, it really changed my entire perspective. And I realized how privileged I truly have been and how if somebody like Rashawn would have my charges, they'd probably be doing life in prison. And the fact that I could go to prison twice and be home to his one charge, his one stint in prison, just really spoke to my heart and opened up my eyes to a lot of things. So when you were in prison, tell me how you ended up teaching Rashawn. Is there a stock market program at this particular prison? Not at all. So I was fortunate to have resources. I had family that was willing to send in books to me. So in prison, they don't offer any kind of programs. They don't offer any kind of educational services. So with all the amount of time that I had, I just took it upon myself to continue to learn. So I had an aptitude for learning and I had my wife send in books for me to read. And I also had the Wall Street Journal sent in to me and he always wanted to read the Wall Street Journal. And that's how him and I started talking. Was he like your cellmate? Like what was the setup at this particular prison? Was it pods? Well, we were in low custody. So it was minimum custody work squads where we actually go out and work in the community. So it's an open bay dorm. It's not closed management. Most of your like higher level custody, violent crime, stuff like that end up in two man cells. They call it being behind the door. 
but somebody like Rashawn and I, we were both on work squads or in an open bay dorm where we were able to work. And that's how we met. Okay. Tell me about how you hit it off. So actually I was in the top bunk. He was like two bunks over from me and he came over one day. We both had a K in our tag. So in prison, the way it works is you're identified by a number. They don't really know you by your name. They know you by a number. So my DC number was K80066 and I'll always remember it. But, um, he had a K on his tag too. So that is what opened up the conversation. But then I had the Wall Street Journal, I was reading it and he came over and said, hey, do you mind if I can read that when you get done with it? So I said, no, not a problem. And uh, Rashawn in prison is very quiet to himself. He didn't get involved with the subculture of prison, whereas I did. Like I was very outgoing. I was very involved in everything you probably shouldn't be involved in in prison. And he wasn't. So that energy alone kind of like drew me to him because here was somebody that was sentenced to prison at the age of 16, sentenced to 20 years in prison, who society says doesn't have a chance. And he defied every odd that you could possibly defy. And the way he carried himself in prison was that he was always reading, always reading books, always reading any kind of magazines, newspapers, any kind of publication he could to continue to, you know, learn. And so when he came to me talking about stocks, it was in 2016. So this was at the height of the Trump campaign. And this is when the Black Lives Matter movement was really strong. And I was so anti-Black Lives Matter. I was so anti, um, I thought it was a socialist system. (laughs) Yeah, without a doubt. Like, and it wasn't- why? Like, where did that seed get planted? It was rooted in ignorance, honestly. But someone teaches you that. Yes, I believe it was taught through schooling. You know, I took offense to Kaepernick kneeling the flag. I was the guy that said, how dare he disrespect the flag? And I remember specifically vividly saying this in the TV room and Rashawn was in there and there was another guy in there. And I said, how dare he kneel for the flag? That's such a disrespect to our soldiers because this is what I've been taught to believe. You know, this is a propaganda that we've been taught to believe about the U.S. and how elite and great we are and how people die for this flag. And there was another black guy in the TV room. He looked at me and they called me DC in prison. He was like, DC, he goes, uh, how dare you get mad about him kneeling for that flag? And he says, that's not my president. He said, that's not my flag. And he said, you'll never know what it's like to be a black man in this country. And it hit me right then, but it didn't fully hit me until later on. But this was the start to the transformation I believe I started to make is because I even remember specifically having my wife send in the Candace Owens book, Blackout. And I was using her and her book as a weapon to try to convert black people. This is the arrogance that I had. This is how like proud that I was. That I was literally trying to convert black people in prison to capitalism, the Republican Party, saying that this is the best thing that ever happened to black people. And uh, like I knew best. And Rashawn used to always just let me speak my BS bullshit, really, until finally it didn't make any sense. And getting like he he never chastised me, he never attacked me, but he always allowed me to dialogue. And that's when he introduced me to the 13th Amendment. So when I started to learn about what the 13th Amendment was, that's what opened up that rabbit hole for me to go down and just I was just blown away by it. But that was what was going on at the time. This was in 2016 when I met him. Obviously on the news every day was Trump campaign, Black Lives Matters movement. And I was so anti that, that it opened up conversation. And through that conversation, that friendship developed with Rashawn. So he used to call me the white devil. Rashawn had black lion tattooed on his arm. So I called him the black lion. He called me the white devil. It was an inside joke with us. But another thing he used to always tell me is that I underestimated him. And I think because he was so quiet and never really, spoke 
unless provoked that I really did underestimate him. I, I didn't realize this until really when I came home and I got introduced to the information that I've gotten introduced to since being home. But yeah, I was the white devil because I was the guy like that. My racism wasn't rooted in hatred. It was rooted in ignorance. You know, like I was the guy that would say, well, my best friend is black or I have three black friends. And, um, you know, my sister's cousin is married to a black woman and they have two beautiful biracial kids. Like that was the type of, you know, racism that I was because like it was rooted in a belief that America isn't as bad as people are saying that it is. And when Black Lives Matters movement started, I felt like it was an attack on my character, like who I was. And I took it very personal. And I, and I feel like this is why so many white people don't understand it. It's because we take it as an attack on our morality because white people will be like, well, I'm not necessarily a bad it person, is. <laughs> but it is. Yeah. That's the thing. I mean, you're absolutely right. Because what you're describing to me is what I know a lot of white people exist in, which is what I call functional racism, which means that it's like, it's like functional addicts where it's like, this is a part of my way of life, but it's not disrupting the things that I need to do to live. So like there's black people around, you're going to have to just be okay with these black people around, or you're going to like be upset all the time. So it's mm -hmm. like, okay, I found a way to like make these individual black people. Okay. But at the end of the day, I am okay with a system that affects their lives in a way that mm -hmm. doesn't affect mine. So I think a lot of people like they think of racism just as like their relationship to individuals, but it's an institutionalized, like it's a system that's so much bigger than all of us. So yes. in support of that system, you are by nature supporting the continued hatred of these people getting the chance to live, right? Which is inherently evil. So, and that's it. Like Touché. most white people are ignorant in the fact that they're racist. Like you could have never told me I was racist. I wouldn't, have, you know, like I didn't really? genuinely in my heart believe that I was racist, really? you know, like because I didn't experience it in my interpersonal relationships. That's why I didn't believe I was racist. I didn't understand it on an institutional level. So once I began to see it from an institutional level and I detached from it and I decentered myself and I took me out of the equation and I started to study it on an institutional level, which we don't get a lot of those teachings. You know, this is where critical race theory and stuff like that comes into play. But I was never exposed to that kind of teaching. All I knew is that I was pledging allegiance to a flag and to a country that I've always been taught to without ever questioning. And the, the insanity of it and the insidiousness of racism is that I was affected by the same system that wasn't even designed for me. I became collateral damage in a system that was designed to target people of color. Mm. And here I am defending this system that I was caught up in. And that's what really was like my aha moment. It was just like this system from the abolishment of slavery from the 13th Amendment, except when punishable by a crime. Then you have the black codes, which deliberately made laws to target black people to where you can't be out past a certain time. If you don't have a job, which white people wouldn't give them a job. Once I started to see this fast forward 100 years to the Jim Crow era and, you know, the segregation laws and stuff like that. Well, now in the age of colorblindness, you can no longer say that you are discriminating based on the color of skin. So what's the other option? You start giving people a convicted felon label. This is why you have one in three black males that carry the convicted felon label. It's because it's the only label you can carry now that people will justify discriminating against.
and there be it would just gloss right over like it's not a big deal. You can legally disenfranchise convicted felons. You can legally set up barriers to housing. You can legally set up barriers to voting. Uh, you can legally set up barriers to education, and nobody won't even bat an eye at it. And I'm a product of that. Like I'm in that system. That now that I see its root and why it was designed, now I see. This is why I believe every white person that's born in this country has been exposed to racist ideology that they are somewhat inherently racist. They that's can, they what I tell y'all! That is correct! He said <laughs> it! This is a fact! You have to un-racist yourself if you are a white person in this country. It's just I don't it believe it's a yes or no question. I believe it's a yes, and you learn to be anti-racist. I had to deconstruct. And there was times in my life, and I will tell you this, this was an, a, a real-life experience that I had in prison. And I was attached to a white supremacy gang in prison. I was going to say, I know there's prison levels because yeah. when you talked about how Rashawn was not a part of the culture of prison, mm-hmm. I was, I was going to come back to that because you had said that you were. And like, I think for those of us who've never been to prison or don't know someone who's been in prison, like we really don't understand that it is its own microcosm. Like there's different mm-hmm. rules. There's different ways that things happen. There's different social expectations. And so yeah. for you, what was your social experience in prison when you met Rashawn? At that time, I was obviously gung-ho with my political beliefs. I upheld the politics of white supremacy, but I wasn't necessarily at a camp where I had to partake in that. Okay. I wasn't forced to. I ended up getting transferred to a camp that was ran by gang affiliations where there really wasn't much of a choice. I mean, mm. there was, but it comes with a lot of consequences, you know, potential stabbings, potential fighting, stuff like that. So I just kind of played the part, even though at this point, my political beliefs were starting to change. But this is what I would say, like, racism was so embedded in me that I remember talking to some of the white supremacist brothers in prison, and I couldn't ever explain this. One thing that used to always make me upset, and I'm going to be completely honest here, because um, I believe honesty is the path to freedom, is that I used to get so upset if I seen a black man dating a white woman. Like, it would eat me alive. Morally, intellectually, emotionally, I knew it was wrong. I knew. Like, why do I feel this way? Why am I so upset about this? I would challenge that belief. And I remember talking to some of the people in the white supremacist organization in the Florida prisons, and they would tell me, see, this is why we have to be separated. This is natural. It comes natural to you. Your body's telling you this. And I realized that now, and from what I know about racism living in the body and it being biological, and it's passed out from generation to generation, is that this was something that was living within me that I didn't, I don't ever consciously remember being taught this, that white people and black people shouldn't date or be married. I don't remember consciously being taught that, but I knew that I felt that way. And if I was completely honest with myself, I had to start to challenge that belief system because why am I feeling this way? You know, like I knew it was wrong. Like I knew that I shouldn't feel this way, but I did. Mm. And I couldn't explain it. Did you ever get to the bottom of why? Because my thing is, there's something to be said for you knowing it was wrong, even though you couldn't explain it. But it's like, where did that seed of knowing that wasn't the right feeling to have? Where did that seed come from? Because you're not a dummy. Like, to me, that's where it came from. You're in it. You do. You said you have an aptitude for learning. So there was an intellectualism. Yeah. So detach it from that emotionally and start to reason objectively. Of course, I want to get to the root of it. And obviously, um, I'm still learning a lot. 
And I don't think that I will ever arrive. And I don't know that it will ever be completely out of me because it's, to me, it's hundreds of years in this country. But I'm reading a book right now, My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Minico. And he talks about. Wait, that. I need you to wait. I just had a psychic moment, Daniel. I just yeah. had a fucking psychic moment. This morning, I thought about that book out the blue for no reason. And now you're here mentioning that book. So something yeah. good is going to happen today. Continue. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I just got it in the mail and I started reading it and it talked about it living in the blood and being biological. And I believe that, that I believe it is almost genetic. It's in your DNA because it's from our ancestors and that it's been passed down. And I mean, I can just remember as recently as my grandma saying racist comments, uh, being in an assisted living facility and not wanting to be in a room with a black woman, you know, like, so it's not that far away from us. You know, we're not that far removed from it. People that say, you know, name one racist law in 2022, you know, it's just an ignorant statement. And it was a question I used to ask. I used to say it's the same thing, you know. Name one racist law? Yeah, in 2022. I mean, I could go on and on with gerrymandering, like... redlining. There's just so many where in the age of colorblind, it's, they'll say, colorblind, it said it's not explicitly racist, but if you study the impact that it has, you know, on right. communities. Uh, but that book alone, I believe, is starting to open up my eyes to like a lot more depth of racism and how to heal, you know. But people got to be willing to get to that point. And for me, I wasn't always willing, obviously. How long have you been home? Six months. Welcome home. Thank you. When you said that you lost a lot of friends and family because of the, ch you said because of the change in your beliefs? Yes. So obviously, um, before I, I told you I was a right wing conservative, I supported Trump. I upheld the politics of white supremacy and capitalism and the entire system in its entirety. And not to mention, I had a toxic faith that went along with it, you know, with the, the whole Christianity, white Jesus, like that whole thing too. Like, so people that I grew up with in the town that I'm in and even family, like they say the change is so drastic and it that is. they feel like now that I'm saying what I'm saying, that I'm morally attacking them, you know, like they feel like it's an attack yeah. on their character now. Yeah. And I, what I tell them is that if you're ignorant and you just don't know, it's not so much an attack on your morality as it is on your education. Mm -hmm. But once you come into the knowledge of the truth and you've been exposed to it, then there's no more excuse. Now it's an attack on your character. Ten years in prison, I didn't get the information that I've had, even in six months that I've had out here. The amount of literature, you know, it, to me, I was never exposed to it. I didn't, I didn't have access to, you know, I never even had the inclination to want to read literature from Black authors. Or even now with social media, the advent of social media, going online and following Black creators, you know, mm -hmm. and learning from their content. Now that I've done that and I've taken that initiative to do that, the stuff that I share isn't like I give credit to where I got this information from because, mm -hmm. you know, like this isn't stuff that I just magically came up with on my own and woke up one day and decided, OK, this is what I want to be like. But once I started to learn, they got upset because now the conversation with them changes and the things that people used to feel comfortable saying in our circles, they can't say anymore, you know, because they know I'm going to challenge it. Because there's a conversation that white people have by themselves, and there's a conversation that white people have around black people. And 
That's the truth. Like if people really get honest about it, at least where I'm from and where I was raised and the people I've been exposed to. I mean, I can't say it about every part of the country, but I believe it to be true. It's like when Mitch McConnell the other day slipped up and said, you know, black voters are, are voting. I can't remember the exact if he said at the same rate, et cetera, et cetera. But as he, Americans, as Americans. And, yeah. the, and people were saying, oh, he said the quiet part out loud. Yes. And that's exactly the part that I'm talking about. Here is a guy that would probably believe that he's morally a good person, mm-hmm. that, you know, he sets out to do the right thing. But it is so ingrained, the racism is so embedded in the fiber of his being that he can't help himself. And I believe this is probably true for every white person, probably not even America, but globally, because America's system has had such an impact on the world. You know, even when Colin Kaepernick was talking about how America invades and our military invades black and brown countries, I used to get upset about that, too. But the more I investigated it and I thought about it, I was like, wow, there's some truth to what he's saying there. You know, America's had such a major influence, but we've been taught to pay homage to our military and never question it or our intentions. And that once I began to question, it, I was like, dude, like, where does this stop? You know, because everything that I've ever learned, my whole identity was woven into the system. So now it's like, I've got to start from the ground up as a human being, as a person, you know, I had to forget everything I've ever been taught, everything I ever knew and relearn. So deprogramming and and re-educating myself. So tell me about Rashawn. Yes. Because I know you guys met and he was able to, you know, through conversation, et cetera, help to shift your consciousness. But, you know, you can have conversations with people. That doesn't necessarily mean that you feel compelled to like tell their story. And, you know, when you get out of prison to feel connected to them. So I would love to hear more about like the connection that you guys created. And also I want to hear Rashawn's story. Like, why do you think he's still in prison? What was he in prison for? What is the work that's being done in the effort for his early release? Yeah. So like I said, Rashawn, when I met Rashawn, I was involved in the subculture, the underworld that you talked about, the whole different rules of living. And Rashawn stood out. He stood against it. But Rashawn had the respect of everybody in prison. Nobody would challenge him. They respected him. They respected his face, his boundaries. And he walked with power, but it was very disciplined and humble. You know, like he didn't wield it or abuse it. And that alone drew me to him. And every time that I would mess up or I would fall down in prison or I I would make a mistake and there was times that my wife and I were going through it because of my choices in prison, Rashawn would always, I would tell him, you know, this is it. You know, I'm going to get it together. I got a life to live out there. I have so many opportunities and people that care about me. I'm not going to do it again. And every time I would go to Rashawn, no questions asked, he'd say, I believe you. And I'm going to believe you every time. And he had like this unwavering faith in me when I didn't have it in myself. And I don't know what he saw in me that opened up that door. But when I seen that in his character and the person that he was, I told him, I said, when I get out, I'm going to do whatever it takes, you know, to help you out, to help you get through the sentence. At that time, I knew that he had a good chance of going home, which I'm going to explain that whole story, too. So Rashawn's story is that he was 16 years old. He got charged with an armed robbery. It was him, his brother, and a 27, 28-year-old female. And 
the 28-year-old female was the mastermind. She had just got kicked out of her housing and so decided that she needed some money. So what happened is they got a gun and decided that they were going to go rob somebody. So they went to a gas station where this started to happen and she got scared. So it never went all the way through and they ended up leaving. So she left both of them behind. Rashawn and his brother got arrested. She got away initially, but then she like turned herself in and then turned state witness against Rashawn and the brother. She ended up getting completely off of it because she became a witness to the case and she cooperated. So Rashawn's brother was the possessor of the weapon and Rashawn was actually the lookout guy. And Rashawn got sentenced to 20 years in prison, followed by 10 years probation. Rashawn's brother got sentenced to 23 years in prison, followed by 10 years probation. For a robbery that didn't happen? Yeah, because they never got anything out of it. I don't know the full details of the weapon being shown and all that stuff, but from what I understand is that they didn't get anything out of it. They ran because she panicked. In contrast to you assaulting a police officer. Yeah, well, I got a high-speed chase and drove my vehicle in the direction of a police officer. I tried suicide by cop. That was just a place that I was in mentally at the time. And in the high-speed chase, I came to a dead-end road. They asked me to get out of the vehicle. I didn't. I turned the vehicle around, pointed it like in their direction. My argument was that I was trying to get away. But at that time, I just wanted suicide by cop. I was hoping that, you know, like it would be over with. And fortunately, I didn't hit any of them. But they didn't shoot either. Not a single round was shot on me. So that's another example of the privilege that I've had because I've just heard so many stories and obviously seen so many stories about black men who've done the same thing and are not here to share their story. You know, I mean, Shondell was asleep in a car. Yeah. Lamont Moses is a recent one that was asleep in the car when the cops came towards him and he fled. His story was so similar to mine. That's why I shared, I made a video on it because He was asleep in the car. The cops came. He was at a dead end road. You can clearly see that he was trying to get away from the cops. Like he wasn't even like when the cops shot and killed him, he was driving past them. And they ruled that he was at fault, you know, because he didn't comply. The same old tired reasoning justification for killing people and police brutality. But Rashawn was the youngest of the group. He was 16. He did not have the weapon. His brother had the weapon. The Department of Juvenile Justice recommended that Rashawn get sentenced to a high-risk treatment facility, that he get tried as a juvenile and not be sanctioned as an adult and get high-risk treatment. There was a 15-year plea offer on the table for both Rashawn and his brother. Because they were co-defendants, they had the plea offer on the same sheet of paper, and neither one of them were given the plea offer by the attorney. So both Rashawn and his brother Jermaine were never given this 15-year plea offer. They pled out in front of the judge with a 20-year cap for prison, and Rashawn did, and he ended up getting 20 years and 10 years probation. His brother got the 23 and 10 years probation as well. Well, his brother went back to court on appeal. The appeal was that the legal counsel failed to convey the more favorable plea. It was exactly how it was worded. So legal counsel failed to convey the more favorable plea, Rashawn's brother was granted relief by the judge. The judge said, you know what? There's no proof that this attorney gave you this plea offer. We're going to commute your sentence to 18 years flat and Hmm. no probation. So Rashawn was, yeah, this is what's happening with Rashawn's brother. And he said in court that, listen, it was me. Rashawn's innocent. He didn't, he was just a tag along in this car. 
he said on, on open record in the court system that Rashawn was just a tag along. He didn't have the weapon. He wasn't the mastermind behind this. He he was just there. And uh, he said, I'd like to put this on the record for the court. Well, Rashawn went back on the same exact grounds, same exact evidence, same exact case. I mean, there's if there are cases identical. The only thing is Rashawn didn't have the weapon. Right. He was least culpable. And when the judge, it was a different judge, but the same judicial circuit told Rashawn, I don't believe you. I don't believe this attorney wouldn't give you the more favorable plea. And they struck down his motion and denied his appeal. So same exact case, same exact grounds. Rashawn's got in paperwork that the attorney never showed up to visit him. I have his I have his inmate visitation records that show that the attorney never showed up because the plea offer was only on the table for like a short amount of time. It was like three month period, a window. And during that time, the attorney never visited oh, Rashawn. In jail. I see what you're saying. Okay. So the plea offer is presented with a like limitations and mm -hmm. the attorney never physically came to the prison to be to able to Wow. Yeah. Because Rashawn was in the county jail. He didn't have the resources to bond out at the time. Was that evidence? I mean, there's there's a certain level of... I don't know how I managed to still have a certain level of optimism about these people, even though they show their asses a number of times. But, like, was that judge given that information? Yes. But the problem is, is Rashawn represented himself. You know, he did everything pro se. And... He had valid arguments. He used the same exact motion that gave his brother the relief. I mean, identical. He, you know, used the same motion. But um, the courts don't like it when people represent themselves. Of course not. You know, and what the judge basically told him is that he's filing frivolous motions. They threaten to retaliate through the DOC system that if he keeps filing these motions, that they're going to bar him from filing motions. So he went all the way through to the habeas corpus and the person that did his habeas corpus is a judge by the name of Judge Bauer in the 19th Judicial Circuit, which we're in. He's the one that denied Rashawn's. And he has a reputation. They've done a full investigation, a newspaper article has done a full investigation on the discrepancies and sentences for him, for black people and white people in his courtroom. And then I have the numbers. I have the article. I mean, the disparity is so huge. The gap is so huge. And people will still try to justify it. Well, there's different circumstances, different attorneys, different this, that. Instead of just looking at the obvious that this is what black people are being sentenced to and this is what white people are being sentenced to in this courtroom. This is in Georgia? No, Florida. Martin County, Florida. Oh, of course this is fucking Florida! Yeah. I'm from Orlando. Okay, so you're, you're close. Two hours from where I'm at. I'm a little bit further south. But that same judge, there was a guy in his courtroom in the same year as Rashawn, 2009, there was a black guy and a white guy. They had the same exact charge, the same exact record, the same exact point system. The only thing different in their case was the circumstances, but it was the same charge. If you went strictly by the point system, which is what they're supposed to use in sentences, okay. same day. They were in the courtroom the same day. The white guy got two years in the county jail. The black guy got 26 years prison. Wow. Same exact point system. Lamar Lloyd is his name. The, the white guy's name is Chase Leidinger or something, but Lamar Lloyd, and I talked to him still. 26 years, same charge, same day, same judge, same courtroom, same point, same previous criminal history. One gets two years and one gets 26 years. There's no way you can justify that disparity. I don't care what the circumstances are. I mean, there's just no way. This is the reality of our system. And once I started to see this in this light, and Rashawn 
opened my eyes to this, like lifted the veil is when I decided, you know what, like, let me use the resources I have to further investigate and to do whatever I can to help him. I'll use my voice because people in prison don't have a voice. You know, Rashawn doesn't have resources. His mom passed away a year after he was incarcerated. Um, never had an opportunity to go to her grave. Never had an opportunity to, to say his goodbyes. And here is a guy that still remains optimistic and positive and selfless. Like he is always talking about other people. It's never poor me, pity me, I'm the victim. And that's what people always say, oh, you're pushing a victim mindset. And I was like, apparently you haven't met Rashawn because he's the epitome of somebody who has been victimized by a system, but never allows it to break the spirit, you know, but it's the reality of our system now. And he's the one that told me there's two court systems, you know, there's DC, there's one for somebody like you and then and there's one for me. And people will argue that the system didn't do me right either, you know, because of the fact that I had a burglar at my parents' house and they dropped the charges in the state press charge anyways. And I tried to explain that there's still levels to it because had Rashawn had the same charges I had, the 13, 14 felonies, you know, charged at a police officer in his vehicle, chances are he'd either be doing life or he wouldn't even be living to do life. Yeah. And that's the reality of the system. Now, if I was not only a white male, but I was a super wealthy white male, then I probably would have done no time, you know? And that's what I try to explain to people. There's levels in the legal system to it, you know? Brian Stevenson said it best, you know, wealth shapes culpability in the United States, not culpability. It's always wealth that shapes the outcome of crimes, not culpability. And that's how it works. But obviously our system disproportionately targets black people in black and brown communities. Are there any organizations working with Rashawn right now? Or... Well, we've raised about $7,000 right now through a GoFundMe page. We hired an attorney out of Broward County. Where can people find the GoFundMe? The GoFundMe is on, I have it on my social media. I have it on my TikTok and on my Instagram page, Confessions of a Convict. And it's in the bio. I have a link tree in there. Or you can go right to like GoFundMe. I think if you Google it and it's attorney retention for Rashawn Clark. So... We've raised about seven grand right now. We paid an attorney out of Fort Lauderdale, Damika Davis is her name. We paid 3,500. She's doing a post-conviction investigation into his case to see what technicalities loopholes, because like I told you, he exhausted all his criminal remedies, appeals. but he, yeah, his appeals. So his legal remedies, he's exhausted, but he believes he has a strong case, even like a civil case, he believes he was talking a lot about like the 14th amendment and the equal protections clause and how they aren't listening to his petition and how the courts are denying him. And because if you just look at the case between him and his brother, same case, same evidence, same everything, but how does one get relief and not the other? It's unheard of. Right. There's nothing standing law standing that makes that make sense at all. And now his brother, who was actually the possessor of the weapon Is has free. the least amount of time. Well, not yet, but he got his sentence commuted. So if they would have granted Rashawn that relief, he'd have been home right now. He has roughly four to five years left right now. So he wasn't eligible for parole? No, Florida has no parole. And he probably was really close to losing his game time. So this is another thing. Rashawn got put on a DOT squad. So in Florida, they have work squads to go out and work in the community, right? And... Rashawn got put on a DOT squad, which is Department of Transportation. They go out to the community, they mow the ditches, they mow the medians, they weed eat. So I come 
And one day I come back into the dorm and I'm like, Rashawn, what's up? And uh, you could tell something, he was pissed off. Like he was really upset. And I was like, what's up, man, what's going on? And uh, he says, I'm about to go to jail. So for people that don't know, jail and prison is solitary confinement. We call it jail, the box, hole. So he says, I'm about to go to jail. And I was like, for what? He says, uh, they put me on a DOT squad. And I was like, well, why are you going to go to jail? He's like, because I'm not going to work. And I was like, what do you mean? He says, I'm not going to work. I says, you have to go to work. That's the job they gave you. You have to do it. He says, no, I don't. He says, I can go to jail. And I was like, well, why would you do that when you got your case in the courts right now and everything's going on? This is before he got denied. And um, he was like, because it goes against everything I stand for. And he said, this is modern day slave labor. And that's how I got introduced to the 13th Amendment with him. Because he refused to go to work. And he ended up going. But he says, every time they put me on this job, I don't go. And they take me to confinement. They got to take me to jail. Because I'm not going to work for these people. It's modern day slave labor. For free. Modern day slave labor. And that's what started to open my eyes to the 13th Amendment and slave labor and convict leasing and everything else. Because he was so well-versed and educated in it. And people in prison, white, black, Spanish, Latina, they would be like, prison is modern day slavery, but never really fully understanding the meaning behind that and how much substance there really is to it. Because it is. I mean, it's just the evolution of slavery to mass incarceration. It's the only way they can legally justify it. So, um, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Daniel, you, you, you have a lot of information and passion. And, well, first I want to ask, like, how are you? I should have asked you that from the beginning of this, but how are you? I mean, overall, I think I'm good. I mean, it's overwhelming at times. What is? Just life in general. The experiences, you know, obviously risking a lot to get out of the comfort zone to transition back into society. And and I'm fortunate, like there's so many people in prison right now don't have the resources to be set free from prison. You know, most people get $50 in a bus ticket in Florida. That's all you get. $50 in a bus ticket and they send you on your way. So if you don't have family, you don't have a home to go to, you don't have resources, then life is obviously going to be hard. So like I was fortunate to come out to a good setup, you know, with family support, had a home to come home to, a car, I did struggle with getting employment. Nobody would hire me for like three months. I tried to apply at Home Depot, Lowe's. I mean, talk, like places that like, I thought for sure like would just hire me. And they said because I was just so recently released from prison that I couldn't pass the background check. I was lucky to get a friend that hired me at a drug rehab, and that's why I'm working now. But advocating on behalf of Rashawn opened up a platform that I never really imagined. Like it was something that I didn't like sign up for or think that I was going to do. And it doesn't come without consequence. Like I said, you know, I have family members and friends that like really don't want to talk to me now. I have a lot of friends that unfollowed me on on social media that won't even reach out to me anymore. So they were all excited when I came home and now it's just like they feel like that I'm just on some and they're exact words on some bullshit, you know, like that's what they feel. So it's hard because these are people I've known my entire life. So that in and of itself is scary to step out into a a world that obviously puts a target on your back. But overall, I would say that I'm good. Like all things considered, 10 years in prison, you know, um, experiencing everything that I went through, like 
recognizing the racism I had, I would say this, I'm at peace. You know, I used to be at war with myself and I never knew why. And it's because the system that I was so deeply, what's the word I'm looking to, attached to, that the system so deeply committed to was in complete conflict with my inner nature. And Hmm. I never knew why. So I believe I found peace through this process because I don't have to be at war with myself anymore. Therefore, I don't have to be at war with people, except obviously the people that think I'm spouting BS, you know, but (laughs) I just wish people would detach from it emotionally and start reasoning objectively and just really take a look at it. Like, don't take it as a personal attack. Know that if they get emotion from black people, know that it's warranted. That's another thing. When I was in prison, and I would hear a black person, and I'm going to be completely, I would hear black people say cracker, and I would hate it. Like, I would take it so personal, and um, I thought it was being racist, you know? But once I started to understand where this word even originated, and that if this is all I have to worry about today, is is something (laughs) as small as that after the years and hundreds of years of what black people have gone through in this country, but this is how petty I was. This is how, like, Badly, I wanted to be victimized and oppressed instead of just saying, you know what, like, let's look at the bigger picture here, you know, and um, these are some of the things I used to share with my family when I was incarcerated, you know, because it's a different world in prison. And I share with it all the time, like, white people in prison don't have power. They don't really run anything in the inmate population, you know, Hmm. Um, and when they form their little gangs or their affiliations, they are not going after other races. They're going to discriminate and prey on their own race before they will because they don't have the power mm. and the strength and the numbers. And, and like I, 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 I share this all the time is that, you know, white people in prison are really, for the most part, weak. And they try to band together in order to, to form some kind of alliance and protection because when it comes to the ecosystem and the subculture in prison is that they don't run anything. Well, the numbers are so much higher for black and brown people. Absolutely disproportionate. And when white people are isolated, all that stuff that they have on the outside and that privilege and that power that they feel that they have goes away because the, the playing field is leveled in prison. You know, everybody's mm-hmm. wearing the same uniform. Everybody's going to the same shitty job. Most people in there, it's not like there's a, an exorbitant amount of money in there. So like once that playing field is level, now you can really see who the real alphas are, who the real, you know, and nine times out of 10, it's not going to be a white guy in there. From my experience and what I've seen in Florida prisons, and I've heard other stories from around, but like that's eye-opening too, you know, and it's a conversation that most people probably wouldn't be ready to have. Daniel, you're, um, you have something special. I don't know if anybody told you that. And for me to say that to a white man takes a lot, but I can like feel it in my body that you have something special. And I hope, I hope you stay clean and I hope you stay in community with the people who recognize that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I hope that there's a certain peace that you get from the quality over quantity of the people around you because... These conversations, a lot of times, like, they happen and then they're done. Because a lot of times it's, like, with intellectuals and academics who Mm -hmm. are speaking to people that already agree with them. 
right? Most of the time I'm speaking to people that already agree with me and we're just kind of like pouring into each other to give each other the strength to keep going. Yeah. But you're in a different position and, you know, there's something that you tapped into in yourself that wasn't like when I was saying to you that there was something in you that knew I shouldn't feel this way. Mm-hmm. That's not intellectual. That's love. Like there's yeah. something in you and that's love. Like there's, that's love. Like that's human. Like your heart was like, my brain has been better. telling me. Yeah. Like my brain has been telling me that this is what it is, but like something that I can't explain is letting me know like that this isn't it. And that is the thing that a lot of white folks don't tap into each other to awaken. Mm-hmm. And I feel like any of the people I know that happen to be white, because I always say there's two kinds of people. There's white people and people who happen to be white. And mm-hmm. any of the people I know that happen to be white, it's like they've tapped into that. They've tapped into that feeling of understanding like, oh, I actually feel love inside me that's different than the all the things that this matrix of a fucked up place has taught me. And I, it's like, and it's overpowering that, like, even though this is so much bigger than everything, it's like, I still have this thing in me that exists deeper and stronger. And I want to play you this small little clip that Dick Gregory said, I want to play this for you really quick. What's dangerous is when the universe pick you and you put on the magic glasses, there's rules that go with them. Mm -hmm. You can never take them off. You never see things that they're supposed to be. You see things as they are. And you can never force nobody else to wear them. So, wow. You can't. Like, you can't force anyone. You can only just share. It's so funny I hope that you, you shared that. Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry. No, you, you, you. Go ahead. Is that this is what I share with people that are close to me and, and they don't get it and they get upset about it because I am so passionate about it and it comes from, like, a place of, like, realness is that once you see it, you can never unsee it. And I see it in every facet, every institution of every place in our society. It's like you can't not see it now. And it's like that when that veil has been lifted in those glasses, you know, once you put those glasses on, you could never not see it again. And that's that's the argument I make at home. This is the argument I make with friends is that I can't not talk about it is because I feel so compelled to talk about something that moved me so deeply. Like, and it started with a friendship with somebody in prison, you know, did it happen right away? Was there like this burning bush moment? No, but like it, it set me on that path. And I mean, obviously I'm still on that path and, and people mm-hmm. will be like, well, in six months, like, can somebody really change in six months? I believe growth is directly proportional to the amount of work that you put in. So if you're willing to put the work in, then obviously the growth is going to come. That goes for, whether you're an athlete, because when I played baseball and I trained hard, then obviously I saw the results. So the same thing goes with, you know, deconstructing racism. And once you see it through this lens, it changed my whole life. It changed my world, like, because it made me see this entire world, this entire country in a completely different lens. You know, in the United States, we worship money instead of humanity and everything centers around that. And is money great? Absolutely. You know, but it shouldn't be what moves us. You know, like you said, love is what ultimately wins the day. And I just hope that it's hard, like with social media to give the full meaning in one minute or two minute or three minute videos. Like you have to have conversations like this with people mm-hmm. and people have to be willing to allow space for growth because it's not owed to us. 
for white America, like black people, people of color don't owe us anything. You know what right. I mean? Like, and it's not the responsibility to teach us. Like I learned from black people and black creators and black authors, but it's not their responsibility to take time out of their day to come teach me and stuff. So like I take it upon myself to go read as much as I can, to watch as much as I can. Like I spend a lot of my free time educating myself, but I'm grateful that Rashawn allowed that space for growth. Um, I told somebody, you know, he showed me how much he cared before he told me how much he knew, you know, like he showed me how much he cared about me as just as a human being. Cause even when I was, you know, spewing bullshit, like he, allowed me to speak my truth until my truth didn't make sense anymore. And, um, <laughs> and then, cause you just hear yourself talk long enough and it starts, <laughs> you know, and that's what happened, you know, but, well, um, you know, a lot, I would say like a lot of racist, ignorant white folks are used to talking to other racist, ignorant white folks. But once they have to say those things to a black person, yeah. it, it's like, it doesn't land the same. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I read my comment section too. And it yeah. just blows my mind how, re- how redundant it is, though. It's the same comments from mm-hmm. the same demographic of people with the same political beliefs. And mm-hmm. it's day in and day out. And um, and now it's like now I can I can see where the overwhelming majority of black people and people of color have all, you know, like where they can see that it's the same tired talking points. Cause I get it. Like I see it now because I get it in my comment section and it's the same exact thing that I guess, you know, black people have been saying for decades, but white people haven't been listening, you know? And, it, and it's always funny because then people will be like, well, you're just a white savior. Or you're the white liberal that Malcolm X was talking about. And it's like, dude, I'm in no position to save anybody, attempt to save anybody. But I believe in this process, I was the one who was saved. You know, like you said, stay clean. Like, and obviously addiction's always been my struggle. But I, be, I feel like it's because I've always been at war with myself and I no longer have to be at war with myself. And when I'm finally at peace inwardly, then sobriety will be a reflection of that, you know? So, But you should it, still it, go it will manifest. yourself. Oh, I do. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I work in the field. Because this um, world is fucked up and it only yeah. takes one fuckery moment to be like, ah! Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's been my MO. I'm in handcuffs within like weeks. If I relapse i use it's it's over with you know i lose everything quickly so i know i'm not naive about the addiction right and i do believe it's a disease you know that's another conversation but it is and with diseases we treat them yeah right yeah Daniel, I'm really happy that we were able to connect. And um, I would love for you to just one more time tell people where they can find out information about uh, Rashawn's GoFundMe and uh, lend their hand to helping his cause. Confessions of a Convict, Instagram and TikTok. In my link tree, there is a GoFundMe link for Rashawn. It's an attorney retention for Rashawn Clark. You can also go to the just GoFundMe page in general and go to... Um, attorney retention for Rashawn Clark if you Google it. I just Googled Rashawn Clark's name earlier today and it's the first thing that pops up too. This is GoFundMe page. So, and some information about his case and stuff like that. And I have information on how to write him too. So he appreciates conversation. Like um, you can write him on JPay, Rashawn Clark, state of Florida. So if you download the JPay app, Rashawn Clark, K77195 is his DC number. 
and you can email him through JPay because he loves conversation. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try and get this um, this interview transcribed and sent to him. I want to tell you something else too, real quick. When that attorney Crump video posted with Rashawn Clark, um, with Rashawn Day, the officers came to his dorm the next day and put him in handcuffs, and they were going to take him to confinement. They let him out. He pled on his behalf that their, their reason was is that he's on social media, is what they were trying to say, and that he was advocating for money on social media, and he's not allowed to do that, or soliciting money on social media, and that um, he's not allowed to have social media. So they were trying to put him in confinement for the videos that I posted and stuff like that. And um, initially, when he got first got in trouble, Tallahassee, which is obviously the capital here, the administration in Tallahassee said, okay, you can post videos, just don't solicit money. You know, as long as he's not, it doesn't matter what I do. They said, I, I'm free, I can do whatever I want. But he can't specifically ask for money in the videos. So when the attorney Crump posted that video, obviously there was a lot of people who watched it. One of the sergeants seen the video and they went and put him in handcuffs. They let him go. But he is in fear of retaliation right now. You know, he did message me this uh, recently and is hoping that's why he hasn't created any more videos here recently because he's afraid of backlash and ultimately being put in confinement. Yeah. So, and that's the reality of the system is that anytime you begin to gain traction and get support to get out of that place, they're going to immediately try to silence you, you know? And um, he's the type of person who does everything right on the inside, you know? So they're just looking for a reason. So now they're just, and that's what he told him too. He's like, Sarge, you just had a stabbing uh, and, uh, the other day. That's the stuff you need to be worried about. You know, you don't need to be worried about me uh, making a video on social media, you know, talking about love and positivity and humanity. Right. Because he doesn't even bash the system, you know, like, he it's not even the way he, he delivers his message to the world, you know, like he's always talking about something positive, current events that he sees on the news. So like, it's not even like he's going after them, you know, I do most of that. So, <laughs> yeah. The script. Well, we have a segment called The Script where we like to give folks some supplementary materials uh, to check out to support our conversation. Now, I mean, you have read a number of books um, and I'm sure you probably watch documentaries, et cetera, et cetera. So if yep. there's any, anything you'd like to suggest to folks, uh, please let us know. The new Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander, must Classic. read, have to read that. Um, How to be anti-racist, Ibram Kendi, um, mm-hmm. my grandmother's hands, Grandma uh, Minicum, Minicum, and then also the 13th. So Ava DuVernay, that was obviously amazing, changed my entire perspective. And I would say Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy, too. So that was a great book. But that's stuff that I've read since I've been home that I've really, like, devoured and has completely just changed my entire perspective. But I believe that you must read and engage in this information if you want to be knowledgeable on it and um, hopefully eventually it'll go from the head to the heart and it'll become real, you know? So. All right. The last dose. Well, thank you, Daniel. Keep with it. Stay the course. Okay. Stay the course and, and keep speaking. You, you might be surprised how you are able to 
I wouldn't be surprised if you keep on this path, you could soon be making a career out of this. Okay. So stick with I it. I appreciate those kind words. Yeah. And I don't know, like I just never imagined, I guess it's overwhelming to think about, you know, I just never imagined a door like this. That's what happened. You know, it just did. It just happened. You know, when, yeah, when, but when you're moving up, in purpose, that's how shit go. Yeah. <laughs> Whether it's, it, right? and, it, and listen, you just said that when you're in a dark place, it flips quick. Yes. So why can't it do the same in a light place? Absolutely. In a place of light. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. And um, we appreciate you. I appreciate you. That's awesome. Stop and stop. A, podca- <clears throat> a podcast network.